Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, let me pray for us. Oh, gracious God, we quieten our hearts. Would you speak to us? Whisper your words into our souls that we might be refreshed, that we might be sustained, that we might be encouraged. Amen. Now, the, in our lives that we face, there will come situations or opportunities or occasions in our life when we are totally discouraged. When we think that God is silent, God is not there, and that He has forgotten us. When we think that we are all alone, and when we think that we are in the pit of despair. And just this week, I got a newsletter from a missionary friend, and this is what he wrote. He said, life took an unexpected and ominous turn recently, leaving us heartbroken and confused. The day after Mother's Day, our 13-year-old daughter ran away. He continues that these days feel like we have fallen into a black hole which sucks up all our energy, leaving us in a dark, immense void. And then he continues that these days our faith is scanning from a thin thread. We are doing a lot of soul searching and wondering what is going on. And even in my own life, you know, there have been occasions even when I feel that God has totally abandoned us. I remember that when I was applying for college. After high school, I applied to six different colleges, and I was rejected by all of them. And after a while, you know that when you receive a letter, and when the letter is thin, the envelope is thin, you know that there's only one sheet inside it, right? And you know that one sheet is just a rejection letter. And when you receive the envelope, even before opening the letter itself, your heart just has this sinking feeling. And you just think that, I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I'm hopeless. But in today's passage, what it tells us in 1 Kings 19, that in our despair, God sustains us. God sustains us so that we can continue living. Living not for ourselves, but that we can continue living for God. God sustains us in our despair so that we can continue living for him. You remember the background of 1 Kings 18, which our Pastor Tim preached last week? Remember that there was this Elijah rented out soldiers' field, and he had a big smackdown with the prophets of Baal, right? And that, you know, things were going great guns for him. He was all pumped up, and then after slaughtering all the prophets of Baal, what did he do? He ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now, why did he want to go to Jezreel? Jezreel is the winter capital of the northern kingdom. That's where the government headquarters is. And there are water posters of him plastered everywhere. But why did Elijah want to go all the way to Jezreel before King Ahab? And I think that it's because he, after seeing what God had done, he was saying, now, this is it. 
this is the thing that's going to happen. They are going to throw out all the false prophets of Baal and they are wanting to install back Yahweh as the Lord. And so he wanted to go back to Jezreel before King Ahab so that he could have the best seats in the house so that he could see what was going on. But when he got there, what happened? In one minute, in chapter 18, he was like an action figure. But in chapter 19, he was an inflated action figure that was deflated. In chapter 18, the wind was behind his back, carrying him to just real even before Ahab. But in chapter 19, the wind was let out from his sails. And so here, in the background that we have, in the first couple of verses, now we read that now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Wait! Elijah had done? Wasn't it what God had done? But you see how blind Ahab was? He only just relegated matters to human actors, not to divine actors. He did not see God at work at all. It was only what Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah went to Jezreel expecting great changes. But what happened? Nothing. Zip, nada. It was just the status quo. The political leaders there were unfazed. There were no people revolution. He expected like a popular revolt. People holding up placards saying, We want Yahweh back. But instead, nothing. Nothing happened. And on top of that, he gets a death threat. He gets a death threat that Jezebel was out with his head again, raising the bounty, possibly from one million to two million, basically off with his head. And so in this despair, Elijah is afraid and then he runs away. There's no mention of a people revolt, no mention of people power. It was just a status quo. It was just as if the affairs on Mount Carmel had not happened. And so we read, Elijah, Elijah, he was afraid. One minute he was great guns on chapter 18. Now he is running for his life. And so when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I know better than my ancestors. Then he lay down to the, under the bush and fell asleep. You see this? Elijah, afraid. Afraid. And then he goes down to Beersheba and Judah. Why does he do that? Judah, Beersheba, it's 90 miles away from Jezreel. It is the southernmost part of the empire. It is away, not even in Israel, but in Judah. Remember, there's a divided kingdom. There's a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So he goes to the southern kingdom away from Jezebel's jurisdiction. And he goes to the southernmost part of Judah itself in Beersheba. And there he quits. He leaves a servant there, meaning that he's like, when a company falls, you let go of all your staff. And so he lets go of a servant. He quits. He had it. 
He says, I've had it. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. He, and he becomes suicidal. Suicidal and say, take my life, Lord. I'm no better than my ancestors. But even though he says, take my life, nonetheless, you know, he does not take his own life because he still realizes that God has ultimate power. God has ultimate authority of a person's life. Now, some of you all may have suicidal thoughts, but there is hope. There is hope. And Elijah himself would encounter this hope. But even in the midst of despair, God speaks to him. In the midst of the despair, God speaks to him. And that God reminds him that he sustains us so that we can continue living for him. But how does he do that? How does God do that? And in this part of this chapter 19 itself, God shows us, reminds us three things by which he sustains us. He reminds us of three truths. And that he is still faithful, as he has always been in the past. He is still speaking in the present. And that he is still sovereign over the future. So let's take a look at the first part here, where God is still as faithful as he has been in the past. We read in verses 5 here, All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he ate, got up and ate and drank. Angel there, you know, is another word for messenger. Jezebel sends his mess, her messenger to Elijah. God sends his own messenger to Elijah. And what does the, the angel do? What does the messenger of God do? He doesn't say, gosh, Elijah, you look terrible. You want to tell me? Tell me what's going on. Tell me what's bugging you. Does he do that? No. He instead, the angel cooks for him. You know, that the angel cooks for him. And how is that for room service? You know, that, how is that? And on top of that, he gives him seconds. Notice here, God does not rebuke him even after he has muttered such an offensive prayer for God to take his own life. But that God ministers to him. And that God feeds him. And you think about it. What is the cause for Elijah's depression? What is the cause of his fear? How could he go from someone who was so courageous in 1 Kings 18, courageous even before the people of Israel and before the prophets, to one who is whimpering and crowding down in a fetal position under the broom tree? What caused that? I think it's just exhaustion, fatigue. Totally fatigued. Now, George Patton, who was one of the generals in World War II, in his book, The Art War As I Knew It, he had this to say that fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. And here in Elijah, he was totally fatigued. He had just ran how many miles? 111 miles. 20 miles from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. 
and then another 90 miles from just Rio all the way to Beersheba. 90 miles, that's from Milwaukee to Chicago. I don't know about you, but I don't think I could run 90 miles, you know, that not many of us could. But after all that, he was just totally exhausted, totally fatigued. But not only was he physically exhausted, he was also emotionally spent. Emotionally exhausted, emotionally spent after ministering in the name of God. For us as ministers, uh, every Sunday afternoon, I am totally exhausted. I am totally wiped out because all the emotional energy is spent in terms of preaching the word of God. And here Elijah has been ministering for three years all by himself, alone. And he was just exhausted. He was emotionally spent. And so that in the midst of his exhaustion, God provides for him as he has been in the past. God feeds him. The feeding of Elijah, do you remember how God had provided for him in the past? It's all feeding. Remember about the ravens bringing meat and bread, and then God provided the water. And then also there's the widow of Zarephath. Again, food, right? The oil didn't run out. The flour didn't run out. And so by God feeding him here, again, it is a gentle reminder that God is just as faithful as he has been in the past. God is as faithful as he has been in the past. And now we come to the next lesson here, which is that God still speaks in the present. We read, Strengthened by that day, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. Now when you read this, you know, you say, hmm, that sounds very familiar to someone I know. Someone that starts with an letter M, Moses. Do you remember Moses here? You can see that there's a certain parallelism between Moses and Elijah. Elijah was fighting Ahab and the prophets of Baal. Moses was fighting Pharaoh and the magicians. Horeb, by the way, is Mount Sinai. Remember the 40 days of fasting? Moses was also fasting 40 days on Mount Sinai here. Remember, both of them escaped death threats. Both of them meet God at Sinai. And then both of them receive a commission at Sinai. Do you remember that Moses was in the cleft, a hole in the rock while God passed by? Moses and Elijah is now in a cave and God passes by. And the significance of all of this is that will Elijah, like Moses, have a glimpse of God? that will be able to lift his spirits. And that is what the author is doing here, setting up this tension. And so with this here, you know, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he said, what are you doing here? Now when God asks a question, I don't think he's trying to find information, you know that. It's not like, hey Elijah, fancy meeting you here, what's up? What are you doing here? It's probably not that. But that when God asks a question, in this sense here, it is a rebuke. Meaning, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be doing here. You should be back in Israel. Even though I've sustained you all the time for you to come here, you should be not here, but back there. It's a rebuke that causes him to reflect on himself. And so God asks this question. But what is Elijah's response? 
Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They have torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. And that I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Elijah's response is that Israel has all gone apostate. They killed the prophets. He alone stands for the covenant faith. And notice that after 40 days, he's still in the dumps. After 40 days. It's like his spiritual depression. It's not like a 24-hour spiritual bug. You know that? It's not like, as what one commentator would say, well, take two Bible verses and then call me in the morning. But rather, his spiritual depression was so deep that lasted, that lasted 40 days here. But here in the spiritual depression, you can see that his memory was selective. He only focused on the negatives, not the positives. He says the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They have torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. And that's true. But he forgotten what happened in the previous chapter. Remember, the altar was rebuilt. Elijah rebuilt the altar. And then Elijah had also slaughtered a prophet. So he basically it's, has selective memory. He gives only half-truths. But the problem with half-truths is that they are also half-lies. And so that he has this very twisted memory and that he only focuses on the negatives and not the positives. And the other thing too is that he has faulty thinking. Totally self-righteous. He says, I, I have been very zealous for you. I have been very zealous for you, Lord God Almighty. I have been very zealous. I have done my part. Why didn't you come true, God? If I have done my part in being zealous for you, what else is there? It's not my fault. It's your fault that you didn't come true in pulling things out. And so here he blames God. Elijah blames God. And that there's nothing more that he could do because he has just been absolutely zealous for him. But here it exposes a problematic and a faulty thinking in Elijah. The thinking said, if I trust God, if I'm sold up for him, then all my troubles will be over. And in this thinking, Elijah puts God in a box. Elijah puts God in a box in that he expects God to work in a certain way. But our God cannot be put in a box. Our God is like Aslan, the lion of Chronicles of Narnia, a lion that cannot be tamed, a lion that cannot be domesticated. Now, I'm not saying that God is unpredictable. I think that's an important distinction here. God is faithful. His character never changes. But his ways are higher than our ways. And his plans higher than our plans. And how he brings about things to accomplish his purpose, we may never fully understand. And so here it exposes a faulty problematic thinking in Elijah. But there's also another problem in his thinking, another faulty thinking. It's this in terms of self-pity. He says, I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. He discounts all the hundred prophets. Remember that Obadiah had kept in the cave? I'm the only one left. 
You know, as another commentator has said, he claims to be the last graduating student from the last class from the last Orthodox seminary in Israel. He is the only one left. But he basically discounts all the other prophets that Obadiah had basically kept alive. In his self-pity, he exaggerates problems. One woman trying to kill him, trying to kill him becomes, they all are trying to kill me. And so he exaggerates it. In his self-pity here, everybody is against me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody loves me. No one understands me. No one has ever gone through the troubles that I'm experiencing. I deserve better than this. And I can't take it anymore. And so here, Elijah is caught up in his self-pity, in his despair. Now, if you drop down a little couple of verses later in verse 13 here, God again appears to him and says the same thing. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And what does Elijah respond? Exact same response. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. God asks him a second time, trying to correct his thinking. But Elijah just only responds with the same thing. And his faulty thinking is like a broken racket that keeps on going, playing over and over in his mind. And he can't shake it off. And he can't shake it off here. And here in this depression, then Elijah basically doubts that God can't save him and turn the nation back to the covenant here. But in the midst of Elijah's depression, God whispers into his soul. God whispers into his heart and reminds him that he is still in the present, and that he still speaks in the present. And so we read here, the Lord, in verse 11, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before them. But the Lord was not in the wind. Again, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came, a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled the cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the gate, of the cave here. And this thing is highly puzzling. It's very strange. And God here was not present in the wind, earthquake, and fire but he's present in the gentle whisper. And you scratch your head. Why? After all, God had appeared before in the wind, fire, and earthquake. Even in chapter 18, God was in the fire when the fire came down and zammed the sacrifice. Remember that? And that God was himself was in the wind because God blew, used the wind to blow the clouds so that the rain would come. And we know that God was in the earthquake. Right? Earthquake says God has been in the Exodus itself. So God has always been present in these, the wind, 
earthquake and fire. But in this instance, God is not present. Instead, God is present only in a gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. What's going on here? I think that what this passage is telling us that God is present in stillness. God is not always present in ways which are visible, dramatic, miraculous, that he may choose to be present even in a still, small voice. You see, Elijah's diagnosis of the situation is wrong. He had seen God at work in the wind and the fire. But when there's none of the miraculous happening, he thinks that God is absent. God is AWOL. God is not at work. But God's presence in the gentle whisper tells us that God is present and that he is still at work, even in times when we cannot visibly see any action even at times when we do not think that he is there, that God is nonetheless there, when we think that God is not at work, he is still there in the stillness. And the second thing here is telling us that God still speaks in the present. God still speaks in the present. But if he is speaking, what is he saying? What did he tell Elijah in that whisper? Do you remember, I had told you that there was this similarity between Moses and Elijah, and that they all both met God on Mount Sinai? Now, if you were to go back to that account in Exodus 33, Moses wanted to see God's glory. He wanted to see God's glory. And God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. That means that I will proclaim my name. I will cause all my goodness, and my goodness is my name. Moses wanted to see God's glory, but God did not show the glory of his appearance but the glory of his character. What Moses saw was not how God appeared, but who God is. What is his character? And that he itself is a sovereign, almighty God. So in a similar way here, Moses wanted to see God's unmitigated power and glory, but what he gets is a description of God's character. In a similar way, God is not present in his unmitigated power and glory of the wind, fire, and earthquake, but in a small, gentle voice that conveys God's character of who he is. And so when we think that God is not at work or that he is silent, he reminds us that he still speaks in the present and that the thing that he wants most of us to hear It's his character, who he is. And if God speaks in a whisper, then we need to quiet our hearts so that we can listen. So that's the second point here. God still speaks in the present. Now we come to the third point here, which is that God is sovereign over the future. 
And reading here, it says, you get a commission to Elijah, Elijah here. It says, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abba to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him here. In this section here, God reminds Elijah of his sovereignty over the future. He reminds him, tells him to anoint Hazael king over Syria. It's again as a reminder that God is sovereign over the political processes of a non-Israelite country. When he tells Elijah to anoint Jehu king of Israel, again it's a reminder that God wants to establish his rule over the northern kingdom. When he tells Elijah to anoint Elisha, it's a reminder that God's word cannot be silenced. God continues to still to speak, and that God is still sovereign over the future. And it corrects Elijah's faulty thinking again, that God need not always work through miracles. And here Elijah thought that if God can't bring about the change that he had seen in Mount Carmel, through the change that he had seen in Mount Carmel here, that he can't do anything. But here God tells him that I do not always need to work through miracles. Instead, I can work through the quieter means of political processes. In this case here, God can work through the governments here. At the same time, there's also a correct another part of Elijah's faulty thinking, in that we are part of God's plan of salvation, but we are not the plan itself. When Elijah said, I'm the only one left, he mistakenly thought that if God's plan of salvation did not succeed with him, there would be no hope. But although we all have a role to play in God's plan of salvation, we are not the plan itself. Who is the plan of God's salvation? Who is the plan of God's salvation? Five letters begins with J. Jesus. Jesus is the plan of God's salvation. And you remember, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, they all appeared on another mountain, a Mount Tabor, the Mount of Transfiguration there. Moses was the one who initiated the first covenant of Israel. When the people floundered away, Elijah was appointed to restore that covenant. But he failed because our hearts are totally wicked and that it requires Jesus to bring about the new covenant, the new covenant of salvation. Do you remember that when all three of them, Moses, Elijah, Jesus appeared on the mountain, there was another voice from heaven. And remember what that voice said? This is my beloved son. Listen. Listen to him. The reason we listen to Jesus is because Jesus is God's final whisper to us. That Jesus is God's final whisper to tell us who exactly God is like to tell us what the character 
of God is like. And so we are to listen to him. We are to listen to him. Now let me just close with some, uh, a couple of applications here. In our despair, how does God sustain us? He sustains us not so much by changing the circumstances we are in, that we find ourselves in, but reminding us of his character. That he is still as faithful as he has been in the past, that he still speaks in the present, and that he is sovereign over the future. Now, in our depression, there are many contributing factors. Many contributing factors itself. Some of it could be physical, due to fatigue, due to the weather, due to prolonged pain. Some of it could be psychological or biological, chemical imbalance, hormonal. Some of it could be spiritual, due to satanic or demonic attacks. But some of it could be theological, where our understanding of God is just too limited, where we think that God is just too small. And we can't always reduce it to a single problem. But if our depression is too logical and due to a faulty understanding of God or of our salvation, we need to correct our doctrine and remind ourselves of who God is. You think about it. Mount Carmel, Mount Horeb. 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 19 here. On Mount Carmel, it was a power encounter against the powers of darkness. But on Mount Horeb, it was a truth encounter. On Mount Carmel itself, it was a struggle against external powers. On Mount Horeb, it was a struggle against internal elements. In Mount Carmel, Elijah was battling against the powers of darkness. But on Mount Horeb, Elijah was battling his own demons. And so in light of this, instead of feeding our minds with half-truths, we need to nourish our minds with the whole truth of the gospel, saying, I am a great sinner, but Christ is an even greater savior. My troubles are too great for me to bear, but Christ is strong enough to carry them. I'm messed up, but God understands me. I'm not alone, but Jesus will be with me to the very end. I may think that I'm alone, but the Holy Spirit is with me and comforts me. I may despair, but God sustains me so that I can carry on living for him. He has not abandoned me. He is still as faithful as he has been in the past. He is not silent. He still speaks to me in the present through the Bible and through the Holy Spirit. I don't know what's going on, but that's fine because God is still sovereign over the future. And I can trust that his plans for me are meant for my good, to mold me and change me so that I will be like Jesus. Do you all know what a horse whisperer and what a dog whisperer is. There are those who are specially gifted to be able to rehabilitate wounded horses, wounded dogs, so that they can continue functioning. In the same way, God is like our soul whisperer. 
He is the one that's able to whisper into our broken souls so that we can continue living, not for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And for this we say, Amen. Let me pray for us.